Hi there, welcome to Glenlyden Baptist Church's podcast network. We're glad you can join us today. If you'd like more information on the church, please visit us on our website, www.gebc.org.nz. We hope you enjoy the pod. Amen. Okay, so um, 1968, um, George Romero started a zombie horror media franchise called Night of the Living Dead. Now, some of you in this room will know what I'm talking about. Maybe the younger generation, if I go zombie movies, they go, yeah, they love that idea. Some of you are drawing a blank on that. Let me fill in the blank. Zombie movies are about people who appear to be alive. But in fact, they are dead, and they prey on the living. That's what a zombie movie is. I haven't sold it to anyone, have I? (laughs) It's interesting, you know, when I was reading Revelation chapter 3 and uh, the church of Sardis, what's interesting about this is that when Jesus looked down on the church of Sardis, he looked at them and he said, I know your reputation but you are dead. The church in Sardis is a church of the living dead. Sardis was famous for being built on an acropolis up on a hill. It was on a major trading route, and it was famous for gold and silver and big, juicy, precious stones. In fact, Sardis is where they separated gold from silver. And so they began a currency system that we still enjoy today. Sardis sat on cliffs. On each side, three sides of Sardis were cliffs, 1,500 feet tall. Sheer cliffs to protect them. With only one major access, a narrow access into the city. They believed, actually, that these vertical wars, the nature of them, were so tall and steep that nobody could penetrate it, and so they never watched over those three walls. It's interesting because with Sardis, no frontal attack on the city was ever successful. Yet, there were two successful attacks on the city. Two. They came because of these unguarded walls, and this is how the story goes. Apparently, one of the soldiers in Sardis, dressed in his full armor, dropped his helmet over the wall by mistake. And so, being a local, he scuttled, he knew the way down, he scuttled down the walls, picked up his helmet, and scuttled back up into the city. What he didn't realize is that the enemy was watching. And the enemy now knows how to get into the city because of the soldier. And so twice they are defeated Because the enemy come up the unguarded wall. You think first time they would learn. Twice. Isn't this what we do? I don't know. Isn't this what we do? We put up walls. Put up walls and we think we're safe. Right? But the enemy subtly and gently creeps in sometimes and makes his way through those walls. If we're not guarding those walls, the enemy can move in. There are three cultural realities 
that stood out at Sardis. One is they, they uh, engaged heavily in the worship of Sybil, who was, who was said to be able to restore the dead back to life. Sardis was known for a city of decadence because of its wealth. The church was unique amongst the seven churches in Revelation because they were not being persecuted in any way. And at the time that this letter was written, at the time that Jesus wanted to speak these words into the church of Sardis, the city and the church had lost its former glory. And with this background in mind, I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1 and go through to verse 6. It says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, I did explain this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to do it again just so we understand completely. The seven spirits are mentioned four times in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, it says to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. In our passage today, in chapter 3-1, it says, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits. In chapter 4, verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and pearls of thunder. I love that. Pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And then chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The Greek word for spirit is fuma, which can mean wind. And we see that in, in Genesis at the very beginning. We see the breath of God over creation. It can mean spirit, and it can mean also breath. And we know that the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 800 times in the Bible. Now, as I mentioned before, the number seven often denotes this idea of completeness or perfection. So, when we read this and hear today, these other words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, it could mean perfection. It could be referring to the Holy Spirit as complete and perfect. And we know, right? There's only one Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 says, For there is one body and one spirit. There's only one spirit. And if this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, then it shows this unique relationship between Jesus and the Spirit. Because look at this. These are the words of Him. Him who? Jesus. These are the words of Jesus who holds the seven spirits. There's a unique relationship between the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the ministry that they're engaging in. And then also, if we went down to verse 6, it concludes with the phrase, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So let me read on in our passages. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name of that person from the book of life. And I will acknowledge that name before God, before my God and the angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Sardis, oh, it began well. It began well. But somewhere on the journey, they become unanchored to God's word and so began to forget about God. It, this reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that time. Think back, people. Remember that time when you were separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. Here is a church that is outwardly prosperous. It's busy with activity, but it's lacking spiritual fervor. Its flame is only but a flicker, and it's about to die. The believers at Sardis give the appearance that they love God, but they lack the work of the Spirit, which would have resulted in holiness, perseverance, and the activity of advancing God's kingdom. However, this wasn't their reality. So Jesus starts this letter to the church of Sardis by addressing the difference between their reputation and their reality. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. It's a church of the living dead. Friends, Jesus knows the difference between our reputation and our reality. Your reputation are the bits and pieces that you bring together and project to other people. Unfortunately, what we project isn't always the reality of what's going on in our lives. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever social media platform you use, you're normally projecting a reputation that you want people to see. Maybe it's for fear of being ghosted or something. I don't know, but we project something that isn't the reality of who we are. Jesus knows the difference between our reputation and our reality. You know, we can even come to church, can't we? And we can put on the face. And we can project a reputation of who we are in Christ. But the reality is, maybe that's not what's going on on the inside. Jesus knows the difference between our reputation and our reality. Jesus also knows the difference between what we say and what we do. You might proclaim to be faithful to God, but ultimately your works and your life reveal what you say to be true. You might say you're going to do something for someone, but you never do it. You might promise to be somewhere at some time, but never turn up. Jesus knows the difference between what we say and what we do. Jesus also knows the difference between where we are and where we need to be. This is why Jesus is so blunt with the church in Sardis. Wake up, he says. Wake up. Strengthen church. Strengthen what remains or you will die. Jesus knows your destiny. He knows where you are now, but he knows where you need to be. Wake up. 
You know, the church in Sardis wasn't alive enough for the culture to even care about it. Their neighbors weren't excited by the church. They weren't offended by it. A lack of being countercultural, a lack of recognizing threats, a lack of seeing the need to be salt and light had left this church at peace, which may sound great, but it's a peace of the living dead. Jesus was aware of their reality. He knew where they were and where they needed to be. The call to the believers in Sardis was one to wake up. Turn to the person next to you and say, wake up. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to move forward in our relationship with God without being aware of what causes us to spiritually die. I was listening to a preacher, Sarah Shrobe, and, and she preached on this passage and presented three things which I thought were really, really relevant um, in, in our context. She talks about the things that cause spiritual death being conformity, being complacency, and being calamity. And all these three are rooted in unbelief when we place our faith in anyone other than God. Conformity, first one. Conformity happens when we prioritize being accepted by placing our trust in culture. This happens when we bend and shape our lives to gain acceptance from others other than God. I want you to understand the culture around us is challenging us every day. Through our eyes and through our ears, our minds are being challenged by the culture around us. Culture is impressing on our minds and shaping the way that we ought to think. Culture is shaping what our relationships look like. Culture is shaping how we dress. Culture shapes where we live and how we live. Culture shapes who we mix with. Our ideas in more recent times around sexuality and all of those kind of things are shaped by culture. This reminds me of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And many of you say, I want to know God's will for my life. If you want to know that, don't let culture shape you. Let God transform you. Then you will know God's will. Our world changes, I think, when we begin to see not how others see us, but how God sees us. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous and glorious light. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Conformity happens when we prioritize being accepted by placing our trust in culture. Secondly, complacency happens when we prioritize our desires by placing our trust in ourselves. When we place our trust in ourselves, we're ultimately saying, I don't need you, God. And we begin to place a priority on our comfort and not our calling. Isn't this what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? When the serpent lies to Eve and deceives her and entices her to disregard God's command? The lie essentially is, you can be like God. Reminds me of Romans 8, 6. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And so complacency happens when we prioritize our desires by placing our trust in ourselves. And then thirdly, calamity. Calamity happens when we prioritize our circumstances by placing our trust in a lie. Calamity is described in the dictionary as causing great and sudden damage. Someone may have violated you. Maybe you said something you shouldn't have. Maybe you broke a confidence or someone broke your confidence. Maybe you've been the subject of some form of abuse. Or maybe these walls that made you feel safe came crumbling down over the last few years through COVID or through the floods. I want you to know this. There is hope. There is healing. There is restoration. And there is forgiveness for each and every one of us. You know, there's always a lie connected to calamity that undermines who we are in Jesus. It often comes like this. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve. God's not listening. God's not real. The true threat is whether we believe the lie or not. The enemy wants you to believe the lie rather than the truth, which is that our circumstances in life often reveal the truth of this fallen world in which we live. And the need to have a loving God who cares deeply for us, and He cares deeply for each and every one of you. It's too easy to think we built unassailable spiritual fortress around our lives. It can be too easy to only resist the formal assaults and miss the thief sneaking in to kill and to destroy. So how, how do we fan the flame again when it's going so dim? When God isn't real, God isn't listening. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. How do we fan the flame of our faith? Verse 3 says it all. It says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So here's the first thing. You want to fan that flame again, to experience that love of Christ in your life? 
Remember. That's the first thing. Remember what you received and heard. Reflect on your encounter with Jesus and how the truth of his reality impacted your life. Remember the joy and excitement you felt when you first walked into that relationship with Jesus. Meditate on the scripture that first spoke to you about the promises that God made to you. Your favorite Bible verse that you shared this morning. Remember. Secondly, hold it. Hold it. Hold fast to the teachings of Jesus and the truth of his word. Do not allow yourself to be swayed by false teaching or the pressures of culture to conform. Instead, remain steadfast in your faith and continually seek God's guidance through prayer and through His Word. Remember. Hold it. Three, repent. Confess any sin that you've committed and turn away. Walk away from your sin. Easier said than done. But walk away. Ask God to forgive you and to help you to resist the temptation to go back into that space again. Seek accountability and support from others who love Jesus to help you stay on that track of walking with Him. Remember, hold it, repent, wake up. Wake up, be alert and aware of what's going on in your life. Don't become complacent and apathetic in your faith. Stay engaged and actively pursue this deeper relationship with Jesus. Make Him the treasure. Hold fast. Repent. Wake up. You you follow this prescription in Revelation chapter 3? I promise you, you'll come alive in Christ and experience the fullness of life that He's offering to you. Because He desires a vibrant, thriving relationship. It's up to you to pursue Him with all of your heart. You see, what Sardis needed, the church in Sardis needed, was a renewed filling of God's Spirit. So that the very little that they had left could be brought back to life. And this is what we pray for today. That the embers of our faith are fanned to life by the Holy Spirit. That's the prayer today. You remain faithful, you receive robes of white and have your name written in the book of life. For this person, Jesus will acknowledge your name before his Father in heaven. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you know our reputation, you know our reality, you know what we say, you know what we do. You know where we are right now and where we need to be. And as Holy Spirit, as you look in our lives, you know the temperature of our faith, you know where we sit with you. And what we pray today is that the embers of our faith be fanned into flame by the Holy Spirit. 
burn bright in us, Lord, I pray. Restore us and renew us. Strengthen us for the journey we have in the culture in which we live. Thank you for calling us sons and daughters of the living God. We are your children, a royal priesthood. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks again for joining with us today. If you'd like to know more information on the church or reach out to one of the pastors, please visit our website www.gebc.org. Hope you have a great day.